Um, and yeah, so, you know, preparing for this, I was thinking whether or not I would just essentially read out uh, what might just turn out to be a kind of extended footnote in my uh, overall project. But I was worrying that it would be kind of decontextualized and that I should maybe take the time to situate it within the broader scope of what might ostensibly ostensibly be my project, my, my dissertation. So I want to do that. I want to give you a little bit of a kind of a brief overview of what the project will be and how this fits within it before I lay out what this is or present what this is, because this is also kind of short. So it'll be a little bit of a, this is my effort to fill in some time. So roughly I'm looking at conspiracy theories, which is pretty, they're pretty topical, especially now. Well, that's what topical means, but they're pretty relevant now. Uh, but I, beginning at the beginning of my dissertation, look rather historically at the many manifestations or the many times that conspiracy theories have motivated some kind of political, social, or, you know, cultural change, uh, taking as a kind of like a case study, um, the exam examples from ancient Greece with, with Plato, moving from there to ancient Rome with um, Sallust, uh, from there to cases of like the Black Death and uh, the witch trials from there. Um, into revolutionary America. And the goal of that is to demonstrate that conspiracy theories for the most part, I can't speak on behalf of all these examples or of all the examples, uh, were ways by which to galvanize and to strengthen a kind of uh, cohesive uh, group, group identity in the form of social institutions. Now they assumed very many different forms in all of these different cases. For example, in the case of uh, Rome, Sallust was writing pretty vehemently against a fellow named Catiline, who he believed was an arbiter for licentiousness, an arbiter for uh, frivolity, uh, essentially posing a challenge to the sacred social order. So he mobilized a conspiracy theory to discredit Catiline in order to strengthen, at least ostensibly strengthen the social order. Now, if we jump to today, we don't really get that uh, side of things in terms of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories for the most part today appear to be mobilized at least, uh, I will say regular, regulatively, that is how they appear um, to be mobilized by individuals who feel like their individual liberties are being threatened. And they actually see institutions as being the threat instead of the conspiracy theory being a way to strengthen and to vitalize and revitalize uh, these institutions. So we see, and this really is the case most, um, I guess, most uh, specifically in America, uh, where, you know, these libertarian conspiracy theories demonstrate a fundamental reversal. And this is primarily due to the fact that for millennia, only the, you know, richest, most powerful people could be espousing these conspiracy theories and have their ideas extend throughout time. So they're the only real examples that we still have. But in any case, they do signal that conspiracy theories historically have not been a marginal thing. They haven't existed on the margins. In fact, they've often been used to galvanize a kind of institutional 
uh, mindset, you know, to maintain social the social order and to discredit and disavow potential threats to that order. Now, what I'm going to look at today with, with this essay is how there are these scholars out there, and I'm going to be a little bit more polemical in the way that I'm talking about it today than uh, I would ever write, um, but they kind of forget that conspiracy theories aren't fringe ideas, at least for the most part. They tend to think that conspiracy theories are just these, you know, marginalized things that have seeped into the social fabric and they present a problem because of that without recognizing that the social fabric, without recognizing that the social fabric is very much indebted to conspiracy theories for giving it a kind of um, possibility, at least historically. So I use this, what I'm going to present falls into what would be my second chapter, exploring conspiracy theories today quite broadly, uh, before moving into an F, like looking at specifically uh, the critical approaches to conspiracy theories, and then from, the, from there trying to consider how uh, conspiracy theories shouldn't be evaluated in terms of their veracity, their possible truthfulness, but instead should be considered in terms of the locations from which they emanate and what that can necessarily mean for group solidarity and political uh, action if conspiracy theories, in short, can be used for good or if they can be uh, a tool for marginalized groups to call attention to, um, I guess, systemic forms of oppression that don't lend themselves to very easy analyses or don't necessarily lend themselves to um, you know, easy explanations. And that is chapters three, four, and five taking on, taking on that question. So yeah, I'll jump now into this after. I probably just made everything a little bit more confusing, but anyways. So, and a lot of people are saying, which is the title of Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Muirhead's book, they wrestle with the circulation of conspiracy theories in the Twitter age. Specifically, they posit a fundamental transformation of conspiracy theories into conspiracism. So conspiracism for them are conspiracy theories without the theory. Now they take Donald Trump as their archetypal conspiracy, conspiracist, not conspiracy theorist, because of his incessant espousal of conspiracy theories without ev any evidence, without any data, without any kind of real analytical rigor. For example, when pressed on the legitimacy of his claim that, that then President Barack Obama was not born in the US, he merely attributed its proof to surreptitious figures that had, quote unquote, incredible information about Obama's history. And we can, you know, if any of us look back at any of his interviews, we can find examples of this. What Donald Trump was saying was essentially that, oh, well, I have these people doing this stuff. Uh, you, can, you won't believe what they're finding, but he never actually presents data. Now that is for Rosenblum and Muirhead an example of conspiracism because there's no evidence. It's just appealing to or uh, citing these kind of clandestine authorities on the matter that doesn't have any epistemic uh, credulity. It doesn't have any uh, legitimacy. So the deferral of responsibility to unnamed figures 
is a staple of conspiracism that does not depend upon the acquisition of data and statistics or, or facts, nor on the drawing of connections, it instead intensifies as a function of its circulation. So the more people that espouse it, the more likely that it will be taken as true, and therefore the more likely it will continue to spread. So it has nothing to do with its legitimacy or its uh, analytical rigor. It instead just gains traction just by it um, spreading through the Twitter sphere in this case. So Rosenblum and Weir had located this phenomenon squarely within the Twitter age where tweets and retweets occur at a rate as yet unparalleled in human communication for the, to some extent. Now in a few moments, the idea uh, the idea that deep state cabal of child predators can be, become a piece of national news without credibility, as just one example. So such is potentiated by the speed of communication afforded by Twitter and other social media. Of course, Rosenblum and Muirhead trace its roots to a few decades ago when dark money began to flow into American politics, and that's a whole like thing in itself. But they are clear that Twitter and other social media marks conspiracism's uh, emergence, it's, its genesis. And its speed allows conspiracism the benefit of perpetual transformations. Uh, layers can be added to the conspiracy theory turned conspiracism in such a way as to make validation and fact checking particularly difficult. They can then easily permeate like a miasma with little resistance, miasmic. Conspiracism is not only determined by the speed at which it's, it is transmitted, however. Rosenblum and Muirhead are clear that conspiracism is a decidedly conservative phenomenon. They write, and I quote, the partisan penumbra of the new conspiracism is indisputably conservative and Republican. And if I haven't been clear, we're really talking about this squarely within the United States. While those on the left are drawn to classic conspiracism, or conspiracy theory with the theory, or conspiracy theory with evidence, according to them. Additionally, they locate among conspiracists a, des a desire to overturn democratic institutions that are often responsible to maintain accountability, justice, and knowledge. So it is in conspiracism's interest, you know, and how they have their representatives within the Republican Party and the conservative wing of the American political spectrum, it is in conspiracism's interest to undermine these institutions, and so it makes an appropriate bedfellow with these conservatives who look upon such institutions with uh, disdain. And all of us are privy to the uh, many, for, for many years, the, the attacks against, you know, liberal academic institutions for pushing the so-called, you know, liberal bias. Uh, we've, I guarantee we've all heard some derivative of that complaint. So they conclude their book by drawing attention to the threat of conspiracism against legitimate epistemic sites of authority like academia. In their words, and I quote, where the new conspiracism extinguishes common sense, there can be no argument or negotiation or compromise, all of which requires some shared terrain of facts and a shared horizon of what it means to know something. Conspiracism comprises not only, sorry, conspiracism compromises not only what people can know, it undermines the very foundation of how people acquire legitimate information at all. 
This is essentially what Rosenblum and Muirhead argue over the course of their book. Now, this was all just kind of brief summary of what their book was about. There is a little bit more to it, um, but I don't have time to give a whole big uh, plot summary here. Now, I wanna challenge what they claim on three broad fronts. Firstly, I wanna engage with the raw data on Twitter users to show that they compromise a significant minority of the population. And within that population, a significantly smaller percentage of users actually tweet or retweet. And the, how these data problematize the apocalyptic vision that Muirhead and Rosenblum construct about the Twitter age and it fostering conspiracism. Secondly, I want to engage with the historical continuity of conspiracism to demonstrate that the phenomenon they are describing, just to recap, describing a situation in which conspiracy theories are put forward without the theory, ostensibly having no uh, you know, epistemic legitimacy, not using facts, data, anything like that, just using you know, non-evidence. Uh, I want to demonstrate that that has actually always been the case for conspiracy theories. And it's strange to me that they put forward this new idiom, this kind of critical way to look at conspiracy theories, when in fact, it seems like this has always been the case. So the, the risk I identify here is that by locating this problem squarely among conservatives, they fail to acknowledge that conspiracy theories permeate quite a lot also among uh, left-wing um, academics and politicians and intellectuals alike. And so we risk kind of uh, rendering ourselves or our view myopic if we don't consider this more holistically. That is, if we don't consider the ways that conspiracy theories sort of invade um, so many different echelons, so many different spheres of society. And finally, if we, for the sake of argument, accept their characterization of conspiracism, if we say, fine, there's been this fundamental transformation uh, of conspiracy theories into conspiracism, we've lost the theory, we've lost uh, proper argumentation, proper uh, use of evidence, we are still confronted, in my opinion, with another problem. And this is that for them, the issue of epistemic fidelity eclipses the other problems found in both conspiracy theories and conspiracism. Most notably, how conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists can often be, use conspiracy theories to promote pretty racist, sexist, xenophobic messages. And their, their project, when they, they almost valorize conspiracy theory proper because of its use of theory, it almost sounds like what they're trying to do is make conspiracy theories great again. Like they're almost, they're trying to harken back to a time that, uh, you know, I'm not totally sure was ever there, but it glosses over and kind of whitewashes conspiracy theories where when they say, oh, well, at least they had like this reputable epistemic or, or kind of legitimacy attached to them. By saying that, it sounds like they're, they're saying, oh, well, then they're better even though you know, historically we can see how these theories were, have been so often used at the expense of you know, marginalized communities, be they uh, the black population in the United States or the Jewish populations all over the world, 
these conspiracy theories are a very harmful thing. Okay, so number one, I ask, is conspiracism a threat? At least looking at it in terms of Twitter. So according to a, re, uh, sorry, according to a Pew Research Group study, only 22% of adult Americans use Twitter. And of this population, 10% are responsible for more than 80% of the tweets. So 90% of the people, 90% of the 22%, which is already pretty small, barely tweet at all. So additionally, they found in this study that Twitter users are younger, more educated, and more likely to be Democrats than the general public. So that means that fewer than 5% of the most active Twitter users are could possibly be conspiracists because only 5% are most likely Republicans. Therefore, because they say that it is a, you know, a Republican phenomenon or conservative phenomenon, then therefore 5% or less actually fall into that camp. Now, this is not to say uh, that a minority of the population cannot have devastating effects on the, the social body as a whole. Like that, that would be very misguided to say. Instead, I wish to draw our attention to another seminal study in the field of conspiracy theory research by Yuzinski um, and Parent, who found that upwards of 50% of the American public believe in at least one conspiracy theory. Now, this is in terms of the so-called classic conspiracy theory that uses theory that has, for Rosenblum and Muir, had some kind of uh, legitimacy to it. So these are the classic conspiracy theorists. And the prevalence of conspiracy theories has remained, according to the study, somewhat stagnant over the past 100 years. Just as a kind of an, an aside, that might seem a little strange to say that conspiracy theories have remained, at least their distribution, their, the likelihood that people believe them have remained somewhat stagnant over the past 100 years, because, you know, we think of the internet facilitating their distribution, it might seem totally erroneous to, to posit that, but apparently, um, according to their study at least, that doesn't seem to be the case. They, they seem to have been rather stagnant with their only, uh, them finding only spikes in conspiracy theory belief among the public sometime in the 60s, I believe, and sometime uh, just at the height of industrialization around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, but that's kind of a an aside. So Uzinski and Parent found that pr the propensity for conspiracy theory belief was consistent across the political spectrum as well. And they extend this, the same applies to gender. Uh, it doesn't follow though with uh, economic status. Uh, I think that that was one of the markers that demonstrated some likelihood in uh, less belief in conspiracy theories, the higher your economic status, which of course dovetails with likelihood of having access to better education, perhaps. Who knows? It might mean a whole slew of other things. So conspiracy theories, as they have historically manifested, not as the new conspiracism, appears a much more concerning phenomenon, given the statistics, than this new conspiracism, which we've identified seems to be uh, you know, seem to permeate only among a minority of the population, not 50%, as Uzinski and Parent uh, identify. So the next, the next point that I kind of want to draw upon that I mentioned earlier is their kind of strange split between conspiracy theories and conspir conspiracism. 
So recall that conspiracism is conspiracy theory without the theory. It is simply propagated by word of mouth and accepted as true, not by the strength of the argument or the facts presented, but simply by its circulation, such as apparently facilitated by social media. However, I, I ask of you, the listeners, when you think of a conspiracy theorist, do you, th in the classic sense, like the person for the last, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years, if we've been thinking about conspiracy theories at all and conspiracy theorists way before the Twitter age, way before conspiracism, when you would think of a conspiracy theorist, would you be thinking of someone perhaps in like a basement, like um, uh, Oliver Stone style with uh, Kevin Costner and a, with, a, with a cork board and like with pins and little pieces of yarn connected to one another with drawing connections between different figures and families and all that, or like, uh, like in True Detective when the Rust Cole presents his, his crazy uh, uh, cork board with that. Do we think of someone doing that, that kind of rigorous theory and analytic um, demonstration of a conspiracy? Or do we think of that one weird uncle who just seems to have this reservoir of unsubstantiated facts that they just pull from God knows where to just say whatever they want. And I tend to think it's probably the latter, but that person is not using these, you know, these theoretical arguments to demonstrate their point. They're just dropping facts. And at least this is stubbornly anecdotal on my part, but that is, has only been my experience just being uh, inundated with unsubstantiated ideas that seem to have no attachment to reality and seem to, in many ways, be directed against institutions. So I, if you're more familiar with that uncle example, then great, we're on the same page. If not, I'd love to hear you uh, expound upon that more when we get the chance to discuss or in the Q&A. So conspiracy theorists have historically, in my opinion, been more passive recipients to deceptive information than active participants within this thing called theory, like doing conspiracy theory. They just seem to be people who, like sponges, taking in this information that they may have heard from someone or read somewhere or today, you know, saw on the internet, that they internalize, they take it in, and then they just regurgitate it later. So the silent ma ma majorities are really what keep the wheels of conspiracy theories moving, not because they were actively engaging in the rigorous detective work that Rosenblum and Muirhead imply of the conspiracy theorist proper, the person that connects the dots and compiles evidence, they say, but because they once heard something that seduced them by its fantastical appeal. So as much as adduced by the startling numbers already presented about the ubiquity of, of belief in conspiracy theories, that is 50% of people believe in at least one, or at least know someone who does, where the vast majority of these people have never drawn their own connections or participated in the theory of conspiracy theory. But that doesn't mean, uh, or that means then that we must have had conspiracism this whole time to some extent. And it is my contention that we don't need this term called conspiracism. We can just stick with the fact that we have conspiracy theories. However, okay, if we accept that the new conspiracism marks a qualitative shift or transformation of the conspiracy theory, that is, we accept what Rosenblum and Muirhead are saying, 
let us take their example, their, their uh, archetypal example that is Donald Trump as our case study here and his use of the birther conspiracy theory. And if someone happens to not be familiar with that, that is the conspiracy theory perpetuated most notably by Donald Trump that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, that he was born God knows somewhere else. Uh, and that would then make him uh, an unworthy contender for the presidency. And this is a conspiracy theory that he has, he was very much uh, pushing for many years, um, just up until he ran for, as he was running for the 2016 presidency, I believe, but around that point is when he renounced it. But for many years before then, he believed that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. So Rosenblum and Muirhead's use of Donald Trump's birther conspiracy theory as an example of conspiracism fails to acknowledge that Trump did not simply credit anonymous people for putting forward this idea. For example, on May 29th, 2012, in an interview with CNN's Wolf Blitzer, he argued that, and I quote, Obama's mother was not in the hospital at the time of Obama's birth. Now, more than a year later, on December 12th, 2013, he tweeted, quote, how amazing the state health detector who verified copies of Obama's birth certificate died in plane crash today. All others lived. And finally, uh, another passage or another uh, piece of evidence. A year later on September 6, 2014, he tweeted, and I quote, attention all hackers, please hack Obama's college records, destroyed question mark, and check place of birth. These examples of or demonstrate Trump's proximity to the conspiracy theory proper, not to conspiracism as Rosenblum and Weir had suggest. That is, he's using evidence at least, or trying to compile these, this evidence or putting, connecting these dots that give him this, I guess, this kind of um, legitimacy that Weirhead and Rosenblum fail to acknowledge. And there's a risk to that because they completely disavow how these structures that use supposedly legitimate uh, forms of uh, inquiry are themselves, can be themselves extremely problematic. And just because they use these proper forms doesn't mean that they're somehow impervious to uh, these kind of violent beliefs. So he, in these examples, Donald Trump is connecting the ostensible dots to form this narrative, a marker of the conspiracy theory. So Trump is only the tip of the iceberg for this phenomenon, however. In recounting the trajectory of the birther conspiracy theory, Benjamin R. Warner and Ryan Neville Shepard reveal that it is much, resembles much more conspiracy theory proper than this new conspiracism. They write, and this is a long quote here, they write, the birther conspiracy theory formally began when supporters of Hillary Clinton circulated an anonymous email in the final months of the 2008 Democratic primary, suggesting that Obama was born in Kenya. By June 2008, other versions of the narrative suggested that Obama was born in the United States, but ineligible for automatic citizenship due to the strict immigration laws at the time, or that he accidentally forfeited his US citizenship when his family moved to Indonesia while he was a young boy. So it appears that, now this is back to my words, so it appears that the birther conspiracism was still connecting these dots using theory. However, if we, 
ignore the evidence I just presented. As Rosenblum and Muirhead do, they don't cite these examples in their book. Um, conspiracism of birtherism mimics the traditional connect the dots attribute of conspiracy theory proper in another significant way. And that is that for the American political racism machine, Obama's blackness in this case that Donald Trump is drawing attention to when he's saying that Obama was not born in the United States, Obama's blackness is essentially a dot that is connected to the believed anti-American principles of his economic and social policy policies, which can then be connected to his foreignness, which is then connected to his, uh, you know, Marxist agenda, which is then connected to, you know, so on and so forth. So Muirhead and Rosenblum's suggestion that conspiracism is conspiracy theory without theory is essentially contingent upon a selective recognition of what counts as evidence within theory or of a theory. When Donald Trump claims that Obama is not American, he is not drawing upon an abstract, disconnected, perhaps transcendent explanation that was born of an ephemeral Twitter sphere. He is doing exactly what conspiracy theorists have been doing in America since its inception, that is drawing attention to otherness as being a marker of anti-Americanness. Without acknowledging these markers of race and foreignness that are endemic to the American uh, imagination and that Donald Trump certainly embodies to um, an extreme degree, Muirhead and Rosenblum participate in a fundamental erasure of the machinations of the American political system, one that when working perfectly, that is, you know, they're using the right epistemic authority, uh, the right approaches, you know, they're using this Socratic method, whatever you want to call it, um, is predisposed to racist attacks against people of color in this case. And this, of course, extends to uh, many other people. We're not even bringing up the problem of like the um, treatment of non-normative forms of knowledge production that are just outright disavowed and that for some people they they are anyways I won't get into that so they don't they don't need in my opinion to put forward their complicated theory of conspiracism to make sense of birtherism that conspiracy theory the beliefs that made it possible are and have for for centuries been endemic to American political life and the conspiracy theories within it when approaching the phenomenon of conspiracy theories today, it is, I believe, best to consider them as an expression of conspiracy theories as they have historically manifested rather than as something new. So I believe that their, uh, Rosenblum and Muirhead's valorization of the traditional conspiracy theory as being more, almost more desirable, like being more legitimate for its use of theory, fails to acknowledge the way such theories have been used to justify some of the world's most significant atrocities and the way that conspiracism is still blatantly tethered to such a method. So one such example is that when George Bush was uh, essentially riding on the conspiracy theory that Iran had these uh, weapons of mass destruction, it resulted in the deaths of innumerable uh, Iraqi and Afghanistan uh, people, civilians losing their lives, which to me seems to be a lot more devastating than Donald Trump tweeting about um, liberal bias in academia, but that's, I'm not hierarchi hierarchizing these things, or maybe I am, but uh, it's hard to, for me to really acknowledge this as being something that demands this kind of attention, especially when it seems to be resting on such intractable ground. It seems to be kind of flimsy. 
So their project speaks to essentially, um, it reads like an effort to revitalize these legitimate sites of authority through their implicit attachment to so-called legitimate theoretical inquiry. And in doing so, directly target the most conservative efforts to discredit, like in this case, academia. So while important, given much of the rhetoric surrounding cutting funding to like, for example, that the kind of rhetoric we're hearing coming out of the United States and in Canada too, cutting funding to uh, certain departments that have anything to do with like critical race theory or you know gender studies or, or any of these uh, departments that are often you know targeted in the U.S. right now. Uh, what Rosenblum and Muirhead are doing are inadvertently participating in the same epistemic appreciation of one form of theoretical speculation over others, this kind of theory that they're lionizing. And they fundamentally reveal their complicity in the broader system of exclusion that has repeatedly disavowed so-called non-legitimate modes of knowledge production in the US and elsewhere. So that's that's pretty much it. That's, that's it. I don't wanna keep rambling on here. Uh, but yeah, thank you for listening.